I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Male Plus in association with Boots. I have to say that loudly. Oh, with Boots. Yes, Indeed, boots. boots. The chemist. Oh, an excellent <laughs> chemist. <laughs> I am joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones and also, very thrillingly, this week by Lionel Shriver, who's actually in the booth. Oh my goodness, in the padded cell with us. In the padded cell with us. Brilliant. Lionel, hello. Although I've completely forgotten how to talk to real people in person. <laughs> it's okay, we're not real people. No. <laughs> I suspect We're just a much. couple of fools in a booth. Yes. It's all about eye contact, apparently. Yes. <laughs> Lionel's looking very nervous about that. So we're here to discuss your latest book, Abominations, which I have to say has the best cover does. of any book I've ever seen. The title is Lionel Shriver, Abominations, mm-hmm. Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. And the picture is of a really sweet little kitten mm. about to be, I don't know, Caught shredded, in a man trap. Shredded it's really, a man trap, by a bear trap. Did you, is this your trap? idea? It was not. I cannot take credit, and I, and I wish I could. <laughs> I think it's probably the best cover I've ever had on a book. I think it's genius. It'll, I agree. It'll really upset the furries, I think. It will really upset <laughs> so many people, yes. animal rights people, as you say, furries. Do, we, furries. do you know what furries are? Like? No. Okay, so yes. furries are people who think they're furry animals. So it's like the next phase in the... Gender, gender wars, thing. yes. So, so they identify. They identify as cats yes, or hairy, cats. just hairy people. I think it's mostly cats, isn't is it? Is it mostly cats? Yes. Hands become paws and they can meow. And drink milk from sources. I can do that. Yeah, well, I'm a cat. <laughs> In fact, anyway. that's, that's really what makes that cover work. Yes. Is that it's a double meaning image mm. because you don't know whether the cat is an animal that I have put in peril in Mm. the middle of the bear trap, which makes me a big meanie, Mm. or I am the cat. Well, yes. I don't think you're the cat, Lionel. I hate to say that. I'm a little disappointed. I was identifying my heart out. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a brilliant, brilliant book But having read quite a lot of your things, I don't Mm. think you are the kitten. Are you the kitten? (laughs) Because if you are the kitten, that's fine. But it's it's a whole new Lionel Shriver that I've, I've never met before in print. It is. Yes. It's a bid for sympathy. Good. Okay. Good. Okay. So that's where we're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the fact that you've dedicated it to Fraser Nelson from The Spectator, which must be the first time he's ever had a book dedicated. Does he know? Have you does told he him? Know? He does. Yes. Was he tickled? And I pink? think it actually meant something to him, which oh. I hoped it would. He deserves it. He's uh, He's been a very a hands-off editor, which at mm. th- this stage of my career, that's exactly what I want. He has published some quite controversial columns of mine and backed me up. Yeah. Never said we made a big mistake. Uh, we should have pulled that. Mm. And he gives me complete free reign, so I get to write about whatever topic I want. Yeah. Therefore, if I get myself into trouble, I get myself into trouble. Yeah. It's not anybody else's responsibility. You know, it's been a very good fit, The Spectator. And well, me. it has also brought you to, a, I think, a wider audience, hasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Mm. A different audience. Yes. Mm. Do you write differently for the spectator audience? I mean, these obviously these are this is a collection really of of articles and essays and thoughts. Has that developed as you've sort of become main I mean, you have become quite mainstream, Lionel. Oh, that I've never been so insulted. Oh no, I'm about to say, Sarah, <laughs> careful. Yeah, you have. My mother says, Oh, have you read that piece by Ooh. Lionel? Yeah. <laughs> but you became a journalist by default. I is, did. Is by the, accident. By really. accident, yeah. basically, because 
the books weren't paying, which is based. Yeah. This is what we all. I, I'm also a journalist Imogen's, by default. Imogen's a writer of books too, yes. and, and it is one of those things you think. Thank God I can write about socks, yes or no, and get paid for it or something. I mean, yours is slightly more upmarket and esoteric than that, but <laughs> but the idea is that you can support yourself with articles. But weirdly, the articles have become very well known now instead. Well, it's, it's turned into a second career, yeah. And, yeah. and I don't feel regretful about that. It's uh, As I expressed it in the uh, intro, it was a matter of developing a new muscle. You've always been good at unpacking really difficult subjects, haven't you? I mean, we did your last book about the people who make the pact about whether yes. they're going to kill themselves at the age of 80. Mm. We reviewed it for our book club. Mm. and But then, of course, everyone's read We Need to Talk About Kevin. And these are subjects that I think resonate because people don't necessarily want to talk about them and yet they are actually very relevant to people's lives you know the idea of a mother who can't stand her child mm. you know the idea of you know what point do I throw in the towel etc cetera, etc cetera. so I suppose it's a natural progression to writing columns if you're a natural polemicist in that respect then you know we live in a polemicist world now don't we I agree that there there is not a hard line at least for me between the fiction and the non-fiction there's a indirection to fiction that uh, you're not usually going to be using in nonfiction because it, there's not space for indirection and you're not obliged to tell a story. Mm. But there's also an essayistic element in novels, especially, which I often indulge. The prose craft is ultimately the same. Mm. And I think that uh, writing nonfiction to wordage has been very good for me in mm. terms of being an editor of my own work. I have a, a rule. I never submit a piece which is more than five words over mm-hmm. the wordage I have been given. Oh, the editor of this newspaper would love you. Yes. <laughs> That's a matter of being professional. Yeah. Because especially if you're writing for print journalism, mm. This is a geometric exercise. Mm. You know, the work has to fit into a rectangle. Thank True. you very much. Mm. So I take that very seriously. And also, that's in my interest because that way they're not going to take out all my jokes. Mm. That's true. <laughs> yes, Just that's to true. fit. And how did you go about choosing what essays and articles to put into Abominations? Because you said, it's saying the book that it's things that you found on your hard drive. What a hard drive is all I can say. I have to say it was incredibly difficult. Mm. There was more to choose from than I had any idea. I was appalled <laughs> um, how much nonfiction I've written. I must have written at least as much nonfiction in wordage as I have novels. Mm. And that took me back. But it also made me think that the collection was a good idea because, well, let's hope that I haven't been wasting all that time, that there must have been a few gems in there. Mm. But it meant wading through a massive amount of material and trying to decide what still read well, what still felt germane to the present. Mm-hmm. and. Unusually, I ended up selecting one piece that goes back to 1997, which I wrote while I was still living in Belfast. Mm. And one of the reasons I thought it resonated with the present is because with all this identity politics stuff going on right now, we're echoing much of the super sensitivity and hysteria about language and which words you use for which people and Mm. that I found in Northern Ireland. The Northern Irish ultimately invented identity politics. And 
So it's one of the reasons I think it gets my goat. Because of sectarian differences, so as you know, how you described somebody was very important. Oh yes, mm. yeah. and the language mm. was, you know, agonizingly important. Mm. Yeah, and, and if you got it wrong, it was a sort of quite mm. a serious, huge problem. faux pas. Yeah. Did you recognize yourself in every single one of the essays that you chose? Because I was going to ask that. Did you actually remember writing them? Because yeah. I quite often, I, I I'm quite prolific, not as brilliant as Lionel, but <laughs> I I sometimes go back through my stuff and read things and think. Did I, I really think that? that? Did I really <laughs> write that? I, you know, it's odd. You know, sometimes reading your stuff at the passage of time, and you mm. you go back and you read something, and you say, oh, actually, that's quite good. I, 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 that's good. Wasn't <laughs> but, as bad. Yeah, as yeah. I have the, Did I, you get I, that? Same, in fact, it even happens with my novels. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is astonishing, given how many times they make you read these things. Yeah. Yes, but there's a point at which you can look at your own work, and this was certainly the case with any number of these mm. essays, mm-hmm. as if someone else wrote it. Mm. That's when you can really edit it well, because you can see it with perfect objectivity. In fact, that kind of cold eye is a little frightening. Yeah. Mm. Because you are making the same kind of judgments you make of others, others' work, that you, you don't have that protection anymore. Mm. Because there's a way in which, you know how you, when you look in the mirror, you stand in a certain way. Well, you do your mirror face. Yeah, and I think that we see. I think we see a slightly different image than other people. Yes, but yes. if you look at yourself, if Always you take a worse, photograph mostly. of yourself on the camera, it doesn't and look you the flip same. it. You see yourself as you don't normally see yourself, mm. and you look really weird. I've discovered this. Mm. I did this the other day. My daughter made me do it, mm. and you do. You look completely different. You think I don't recognize that person at all. So that's interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah. but, but it's the, you do the same thing with text. Yeah. yeah. But did you find any of your opinions had changed? There's a great essay in here about Brexit and whether you'd thought, God, I, did I really think that then? Or or did those things just not make the cut when you were putting the book together? If I changed my mind, I probably didn't put it in the okay. book. But right. I, I'm ashamed to say that I haven't often changed my mind. I was right all along. Mm, yeah. What, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've I've become, if anything, fiercer. Right. In certain opinions, mm-hmm. but I haven't done a lot of reversals. Mm. And I would have more res- respect for myself if I had. Mm. Interesting that you say that writing for the spectator, you've never had your, you know, he's always allowed you to say what you wanted to say. I mean, that's not really true anymore of the book publishing industry, is it? No. No, it isn't. And that's so sad because actually you'd have thought that the book publishing industry should be the one yeah. place where people can actually yeah, no, explore that's interesting. Ideas. I mean, this is there's some sort of quite punchy polemics in here. Mm. Was it difficult to get that past? Because when I write things, you get, everything gets sensitivity read these days, which I imagine there were no sensitivity readers for right. this book. Right, Harper Collins would never make that mistake. Good, but in my publisher's defense, there was no effort to interfere with my selection. Mm to moderate my opinions Mm -hmm. or even to abridge a single line Mm. in this book. Mm. So I think HarperCollins has acquitted itself with great dignity and Mm. respect for freedom of speech, which I I would not say the same for most mainstream publishers right now. Do you think they're scared of you, Lionel? (laughs) It's possible. The kitty cat. Can you imagine the meeting? (laughs) Imagine the meeting saying no no to Lionel. No, we can't do that. No. Do you think that if you were starting out as a novelist today, you'd get published? Possibly not, though it depends on which book we're talking about. Mm. There are a number of books that don't have any overt political content, and I think I would slip through. Mm. This book would be difficult to publish, Mm. cold. 
Yeah, because you talk in the, the interview talking about the the whole Woody Allen debacle about whether do you remember that his memoirs were not published, and you were talking about whether there's a market for something like that, and it's all about the sort of commercial aspect of the deal. Whereas this, they've clearly decided this is commercially viable; otherwise, they wouldn't be printing it. Yes, and the truth is that a lot of mainstream publishers are missing a trick because. Mm especially if we're talking about the anti-woke material, there's a huge audience for pushback against this hard left authoritarianism. Totally. You have to look, only have to look at things like GB News, which Mm. everybody would fail. Where are we speaking? We're at the Daily Mail. Mm. people, People are interested and actually most people are not frightened of having a debate. Oh, not, I think they frightened. are frightened of having a debate. Well, most of the readers who email me are quite happy to have a conversation. Oh, about really? That, that, you know, this idea that you can agree to disagree over something mm. is not completely obsolete, I don't think. I think at least we can say that most people aspire to live in a world mm. where you can debate freely mm. and disagree and not necessarily make it ad hominem, not make it personal and have a drink at the end. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of people hide behind other people, like for example, you know, the sort of the hashtag I stand with J.K. Rowling. Yeah. All those sort of people. I know thousands of people who would sort of retweet that or do that, but they're too scared yeah. to. And I, a friend of mine was asked a few months ago to. She's a radio presenter asked to talk about the trans lobby, and she said, "No, I'm too frightened. I, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to go there." And I wondered whether we, whether you think we are less brave than and we used makes, to be. What makes you so brave, mm. Lionel? Because you are quite brave. <laughs> Honestly, I think one of the reasons that I am able to hold my nerve is that I stay off social media. Ah, uh, okay. And that means that people can say all kinds of mean things about me behind my back, and I don't know about it. Yeah. And ignorance is bliss. I mean, one of the things about social media is that it makes everyone think that they're a social commentator. Everybody thinks that their view is suddenly really important and valid. Mm. And, and is not. And it's, is it? No. Well, well, or the, is it? Maybe it is. The problem know. with uh, everyone assuming the stage is nobody's in the audience. So mm. there's a lot of haranguing. There's a lot of speaking, mm. but there's not a lot of listening. Well, and everybody has to shout because everyone's talking. So the louder you make your voice, mm. the more. And then you just end up with a bunch of people screaming at each other. Mm. And there's no proper arguments made. And also there's no due diligence done. And that's the other thing I like about your writing is that you're rigorously intellectual Mm. in a way that actually not many people are these days so most of the world spends its time retweeting rubbish that they've someone sent them on a Mm. gif or something or on a stupid video and they don't bother to double check their sources which is how you end up in a situation where people in america think that ethnic minorities make up 60 percent of the population when in fact they don't Mm. because people never challenge anything that's said on the internet but what i like about your writing is it's it's kind of it's almost academically sort of rigorous. And I think that's quite an important contribution because nobody does their research anymore. One of the problems with people being shabby about factual matters is that on the internet, that spreads. So it magnifies itself all Mm. the time. I've noticed that even in pieces about me Mm. that I recognize these factoids, a, a, a misquote, quotation, for example, it spreads everywhere. Mm. 
there was one explanation for why I changed my name when I was 15 from Margaret Ann mm. to Lionel. Obviously, why would you want to be Margaret Ann? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted um, to ask you about that. Yes. And, and it was that I thought men had a better life. Mm. Now, does that sound like me? Because it's completely illogical. Why would my calling myself Lionel give me the better life that men have? It's idiotic. Yeah, when you're 15, when you're 15, you make those choices. I know, but what I love is you actually did it. Because, so you must have been quite feisty even then. Because you, we all have fantasies about changing our lives and our names around that sort of age. Yeah. And mine was embarrassing. I want to be called Hermione. It's rather embarrassing now, but I didn't do it. But you chose Lionel and did do it. So I think that's kind of interesting. Well, at least I figured out that if I was going to ever get rid of Margaret Anne, mm. I had to change my name and then stick with it. Swiftly. So, Did any of you out there... calling you Margaret Anne? My family called me the whole shebang. Margaret <laughs> Anne. <laughs> Margaret Anne. Just to really annoy Just you. To annoy you. But, Just but, to but, annoy. but I, I found that you said you liked the sound of it, Lionel. That's yeah. what I read. I like the sound of it. Yeah. And at that time, I didn't know anybody named Lionel. And have you enjoyed using the name Lionel all the way through? I like it. Right. You haven't yeah, thought I of feel... changing it to another one? Nope. Okay. Nope. I I stuck by my 15-year-old vow. And it's funny. I just went through, um, I'm sorry to admit, I now qualify for Medicare in the United States. So okay. my Social Security account is the only account, the only piece of paper, the only remainder of Margaret Ann Schreiber. Right. And <laughs> she's it still there. It was so annoying to me <laughs> to get my Medicare card, and that's what it says. <gasps> Margaret Ann Shriver. I thought I got rid of her. Was it like a slap in the face? It she's was. Yes. It enrages me. She's yeah. haunting you. And but it, what's interesting about you doing that is that that is an identity choice. It is an yeah. identity choice. And it's funny because my disgust at this Medicare card, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very childish. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It feels yeah, childish. Yeah, but yes. fa fast forward, yes. you know, 40 years and you could be a 15-year-old girl who Margaret thinks Anne. she's a boy. Oh, well, you know, that's, oh, that's yes. one that's of the essays. That's what I'm saying. That's you know, one of the essays. The tomboy phase. Yeah. Yeah. That I included in this collection. Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Which is addressing the whole transgender thing mm. and saying that I was a tomboy as a kid. I changed my name to mm. Lionel. Mm. I tended to w wear men's button-down shirts. And I grew up between two brothers so that I tended to play with cars and trucks. And mm. we crashed, you know, model trains from a great height and loved to blow things up. And, and um, you know, that's that's all very boyish. And I could see how, if it were now... My parents might think, oh, you know, maybe she's really a boy and send me to Tavistock. And I, I'm glad they didn't mm. because I have an appreciation for the large ranges, the large range of what it means to be female. Well, exactly. I mean, just because you're a woman doesn't mean to me you have, you don't just have to be one sort of girl. Mm. Well, it's one of my big problems with this transgender movement mm. is that it's all built on stereotypes. It is. Mm. And I've spent my life trying to get away from those stereotypes. Mm. And I thought that the women's movement was initially motivated by the same thing. Mm. Like, let's all be individuals. There are many different ways of being female. It doesn't mean that you necessarily wear a dress and have eyelashes as long as your arm, mm. <laughs> right? Mm.
And I don't even understand what it means when people who think they're transgender say, well, I feel like a woman. And I don't especially feel like a woman. I'm not I don't know sure what that means. I, I just well, feel like me. I, I just I, I have no un- understanding of that sensation. Yeah, yeah. And when I am by myself, you know, in a room or walking in the woods, I don't feel especially female. Mm. I'm I don't feel that my soul, if you will, mm. is female. I don't believe in the gendered self. Mm. And I think that the mental space is unsexed. Mm. And I prefer to conceive of other people that way too. Mm. I agree with you. And mm. I also think that there are moments like, you know, there are moments as a woman when you feel more like a woman and less like a woman. So like, yeah, you feel very womanly when you have children, mm. you know, because that's what you're doing. Mm. And it's all, you know, so the idea... Or walking home at night, you can feel it, very it, female exactly. and vulnerable at that point. But it's yeah. mostly in relation to other people. Yes, yeah, exactly. True. Yeah. So I don't fight that. I recognize I'm female. Mm. I'm not convinced that it would be that much better to be born to the other sex. You know, mm. both sexes have downsides. Mm. Did you always want to be a writer? Was that one of the reasons behind it? Because, of course, you know, all those, George Eliot and all those people yes, changed their names true. to yeah. be boys to make it easier for them. I think that's, that would be rewriting history. Yeah. I mean, yes, I did. I wanted to be a writer since I was seven. Yeah. You know, basically since I learned to read. I mm. thought yeah. it was so cool. All this something from nothing. Yes. <laughs> But no, I wasn't imitating George Eliot. I quite like to talk to you about tennis. Yeah. Do you play? Well, I'll be honest with you. My father, he was a very good tennis player. Oh, in his was youth. he? Very, very seriously that. good. Yeah, he got to the juniors at Wimbledon. No, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. Wow. So this it's is the, so this is a this is a story. This is my father's story. Mm. So he got to the juniors at Wimbledon, mm. and he broke his racket in the semi-final. Oh, okay. And the story goes that my grandfather would not buy him a new racket for the final. So he played with a broken racket. Because in those days you played with wooden Wood ones. Wooden ones, yes. He'd cracked the wood and he lost. And, oh, big surprise. Yeah. And that, you know, has basically informed my father's entire life. That's a brilliant apocryphal story, isn't um, it? You know, uh, he always used to say to me, it's the only reason I ever go out to work is so that I'm never in a situation where I can't afford my own racket. <laughs> Uh, so he then tried to teach me to play tennis, which was obviously disastrous, not least because I'm so short-sighted and, I mean, I can't see anything really. And right, I couldn't so you see, couldn't follow the ball. I, well, I couldn't follow the ball because I'm sort of minus eight. Mm. And so in those days I was wearing glasses. Also, I suspect you wouldn't stop talking on court. Which I is, was very which, quiet as a child, Oh, really? Oh, right. and, Too uh, much chatting. <laughs> and, but he used to shout and scream at me and basically scare the bejesus out of me. And so then, as a result... I never really played tennis, even though I think that had my father not destroyed it for me, I think I would have really enjoyed it as a game. And I watch a lot of tennis. Mm. It's the only sport right. I actually enjoy it's very watching. Well, isn't it? For, for me, I have the opposite association with tennis, which is also in the book, because my father taught me to play and tennis brought out his best side. So often with sports, you see the worst side of your parents because mm. it makes them competitive, mm. frustrated with themselves. For some reason, though my father was quite a perfectionist and everything else, he was quite relaxed on the tennis court. He was a completely different person and had a sense of living in the moment, you know, mm. pleasure, just enjoying the experience. He wasn't 
very hard on us when he taught us to be. He was very patient. Wow. My father was not a patient man. <laughs> so all of my associations with my father and tennis are positive. And I always felt grateful for the fact that he taught us. And up until into his early 80s, we were, would still go out and hit a ball. He lived it to almost 94. And even in his 90s, when he could barely walk, was saying, well, you know, I'm a little worried that I might not be able to play tennis anymore. I mean, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking because <laughs> obviously he couldn't play tennis yeah. anymore. But I liked the fact that that, to him, was one of his reference points mm. for for still being in the world as himself. Do you feel like that about tennis? I do. Mm. How I do. often do you play? I mostly play in the summer, but w when I am playing in the summer, I'll play three or four times a week. Tennis and, and me, writing is a, a very, very well-known combination. It's a good of, combination. There are lots of writers who are quite good tennis players. It's a good combination, and most of all, I think that writers need some kind of physical outlet because mm. it's so passive. Mm. You just sit there. Well, tennis keeps your shoulders quite loose as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's also the the one form of exercise I do that I do out of joy and not obligation. Mm. And that's, I treasure that. Yeah. No, no, I'm very jealous of it because, mm. because as I said, I love watching tennis. It's my, I absolutely love Wimbledon. I'm glued to it. But I just can't play. I just cannot play the game. It's a real shame. From contraception to treating cystitis to menopausal changes, women's health is something you always need to keep an eye on. Boots Online Doctor can help you with that. You don't need an appointment. You can just head to the website to find advice and access to prescription treatment, if appropriate, right at your fingertips. For more information, visit boots.com slash online doctor. Boots with you for life. T's and C's. Access to treatment is subject to an online consultation with a clinician to assess suitability. Subject to availability, charge supply. Do you like being on transmit or are you someone who's often on run receive? Because as a writer, I'm always on transmit, mm. as Imogen will tell you. Yeah. You know, I'm always wow, 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 my ideas, my thoughts. Or are you actually a listener? Well, I'm a reader. Mm. So I'm constantly absorbing other people's thoughts. And mm. one of the changes in my habits in the last few years, as I've written more journalism, is that I read a lot more of it. Mm. So I'm constantly reading other people's opinions. Mm. I I subscribe to a ghastly number of these newsletters mm. and I read writers like Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan mm. on Substack, Barry Weiss's Common Sense. Do you think it's become more sort of reductive and difficult to become a writer these days? I mean, I'm just thinking about your uh, your brilliant Mexican hat experience in Brisbane. The idea that the choices that we have as writers is becoming increasingly should we explain Less. the Mexican hat? Oh, the Mexican hat. Just in case the <laughs> yes. listeners don't know about the Mexican hat. Well, actually, Lionel can explain the Mexican Lionel, hat. Lionel, explain the Mexican <laughs> hat. Okay, I did a speech in 2016 in, uh, for the, to open the Brisbane Writers Festival. Mm. And it was early days for the concept of cultural appropriation. Mm. I'm afraid that concept has taken off since. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to nip it in the bud. I'm afraid if it... Uh, I may instead have propagated it over my own dead body. Um, but what I was arguing is that it's a, it was an especially deadly concept for fiction writers because 
we professionally inhabit people very different from ourselves in order to tell stories that have characters in them that aren't all the same. Mm. And I worried that if we were told we had to keep our hands off other people and their cultures, that eventually all we could write is memoir because we yes. end up writing about yep. ourselves. Mm. And believe me, there are plenty of fiction writers that do that already. <laughs> we do <laughs> yeah. not need to be encouraged. Yes. So the speech started with an anecdote talking about group of university students who got in big trouble for wearing miniature sombreros at a tequila party. So and the, for the very last line of the speech, I said that, that fiction writers have to wear many hats, mm. including sombreros. And for the last three words, I pull out a sombrero, which I had ordered on Amazon and in advance, and put it on. And this is supposed to be some kind of outrage. Yeah, I, well, also, also, whatever happened to humor? I mean, exactly. It sounds to me it like was a, just being It funny. was a little punctuating joke. It was a very joke. funny joke. It was a little yes. joke. Yes. And, it, and, and in fact, one of my favorite articles about this so-called scandal mm. was titled, um, Lionel Shriver thinks a sombrero is just a hat. What? <laughs> <laughs> what is an entire yeah. cultural backstory? <laughs> Better believe it. That's exactly what I think it is. Exactly. I've thought of ha having that one framed. But when did it, when did people become a so human? I know. And I b know. so sort of puritanical. Yeah. Why are we living through a sort of crucible mm. style? I know. It's just bizarre. What? I know. It is so unappealing. Mm. The whole gestalt mm. of the woke world is joyless. It's ultra serious, as you said. Perfectly humorless, judgmental, mm. self-righteous, sanctimonious, prissy, picky, you know, petty, mm. vengeful. I can't think of anything nice about it. No. No, no I mean, it's, it's like being in the crucible. It is like being in the <laughs> yeah, crucible. Yeah. And it's the thing of these people who set themselves up as being the nicest people. Oh, I'm just lovely and nice and I just want to be kind. They all say kind, they, they, kind to everybody. Yeah, but they're kind, not kind. kind. But no. they're the most unkind people yeah. you'll ever encounter. They're the people who will scream at you in the street. Mm, for being unkind. Yeah, for being <laughs> well put. It's just that, but the hypocrisy of it is just extraordinary. I don't know where it's come from. I mean, I thought we'd left it all behind with the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. But it feels like it's part of human nature and that somehow the sort of internet, the sort of kind of bringing together of human consciousness... Well, it's your hours of hate, isn't it? It's reignited yeah. it. Well, the moral high ground has always been attractive real estate. Mm. Yes, that's true. That's true. But what's fascinating about the idea that of cultural appropriation means that if you write historical fiction, which is what I do... Hysterical fiction. Hyster <laughs> historical fiction. I mean, therefore, you can't possibly write anything. No. So by rights, Hilary Mantel should have been a middle-aged white man. Uh, <laughs> and it's like actors as well. Yeah. I mean, the idea that a gay character can only be played by a gay actor yeah. or that a, you know... Well, which is a defiance of acting. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. acting it, is supposedly about to be pretending, somewhere else. Exactly. Mm. You know. And uh, yeah, I think that that concept of that you have to be whatever it is that you're pretending to be mm. infected fiction first and then hit acting. Mm. And once it got to acting, it really became the height of absurdity. Mm. But it's still taken seriously, yeah, including by casting directors. The thing is, I think that whole world of artists and you know, performers, they tend to be quite sort of reluctant. I think they're running scared, yes. to be honest with you. you know, I think they're frightened about being counselled, about something, someone complaining yeah. about something. You know, it's very, very, very 
dangerous times. But also, but people you, are being people will literally write you off for absolutely no reason. Yes. As we discovered the other day when we spoke to that lovely woman. Gillian. That, we had a woman on our show, Gillian, who had just literally tweeted, I stand so. with JK Rowling, you know mm-hmm. that hashtag. Yeah. And she's a children's writer and she had a very successful line of children's books and her publisher dropped her. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Because and now she's a truck driver. And now she drives shocking. HGVs. HGVs. I bet she's better paid. <laughs> Do you know what? I think she probably is lying off. Having more fun as well I mean, and that, a better breakfast. But that whole... <laughs> has that, better stories. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but that whole J.K. Rowling thing, which is just yeah. a woman trying to have a sensible and quite grown-up conversation about how these things affect women's rights... Mm. It's just unbelievable. I mean, her position is so moderate. It is. I know. Yes. Right. She believes in the reality of biological Mm. sex. That alone now can get you into trouble. Mm. And that while she has regard for transgender rights, and basically everybody does, and this whole idea that that there's this terrible discrimination out there is absurd. This idea that there's the victimhood is just so Mm. weird. Well, everyone wants to be discriminated against. That's a whole other subject. Yeah. But... So she thinks that there are certain places where it should be biological women only, like in prisons. Mm. And clearly, if you let biological men play in women's sports, that's the end of women's sports. Mm. But these are very, you said mainstream, That talk about mainstream. Mm. That's completely middle of the road. The mm. trouble is that the left right now, it's a set menu. You can't order a la carte these opinions, Mm. right? So you absolutely have to have the rice pudding for dessert. Mm. (laughs) And therefore, you are not allowed to depart even slightly. Mm. And that's the real irony of the J.K. Rowling story Mm. is that she is one of the left. Yes, Mm. indeed. She's Mm. very, very woke. Mm. She would agree with all of these people and everything else, Mm. but she's not allowed that one departure. Mm. It's that rigidity of thought, isn't Mm. it, that's so distressing? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a giveaway of what kind of a mindset we're talking. Mm. Do you think we are sort of losing the the sort of culture wars? Um, Do you think that that our culture is becoming increasingly restricted I mean, and boring and I mean it's interesting that you were talking recently about your daughter applying to go to university in America mm. and having to sort of write this thing about how some diversity question that she endless had to, diversity questions yes. about how diverse she had been right. in her life yes and yeah <laughs> how do you be diverse I don't know we, ma- Today, we managed I'm gonna to make get her very I'm diverse gonna, yeah I mean <laughs> but the thing is is you've got you know it's almost like it's a prerequisite mm. for entry into a university is to prove that you're Diverse. I mean, what does that even mean? I don't, I don't understand I don't know. it. But I think when your culture is under threat, do you think people become more rigid? Because I'm thinking, like, for example, in Ukraine at the moment, Putin is literally trying to wipe out as much of Ukrainian culture as possible. Do you think that is possible to do that? Or do you think just it just becomes become people become more entrenched in what they believe in? Or do you think they can... Do you understand? Yeah, I, guess, totally. I guess we'll find out. I mean, to me, a lot of this imposed ideology is skin deep right and it's pasted on top i'm not convinced that all the people who espouse it really believe it Mm. a lot of people are acting out of fear Mm. or out of lack of an imagination or ordinary conformity Mm. the zealous ideologues i think are few although 
often in a position of considerable power. I mean, what I find frustrating is that the audience I'm writing for in The Spectator, for example, is very broad. It's most people. The opinions I'm advancing are most people's opinions. Mm -hmm. That's what's so weird. Mm. And yet I'm often regarded as some kind of right-wing nut. Mm. Whereas this very slight proportion of the population is dominating the public square, if you will. And that's because they have captured, and this way of thinking has captured society, and I, I might refer especially to the UK and the US, mm. on an institutional level. Is, is there yes, shouting louder? You're absolutely right. The institutional level is the key thing. So the, this is the thing. They're in, they're in universities, they're in organizations, mm -hmm. they're in publishers, yeah. uh, foundations, charities. So how this happened, I don't quite understand. Mm. You know, I'm not a conspiracy monger. I don't think that there's this cabal out there that has engineered this. So I don't quite understand how it evolved. There is a natural evolution probably coming directly from the universities so that it's the educated class that gets into positions of authority and control everybody else. Mm. So I can only blame the universities. Yeah, and I mean, they started going funny, especially in the 1990s. And you can trace some of this stuff back to the 1960s. Yes, I guess you can. Yeah, and I think people were just blindsided a little bit and didn't quite know how to deal with it. I think there's a lot of it is just straightforward sort of uselessness or just mm. not being, you know, not really knowing what to say when somebody... Well, absence of independent thought. Yeah. Mm. People are not thinking for themselves. Mm. They're not stopping and saying, hold on here, this is crazy. Mm. Tiny little example. Mm. It wasn't long ago that we were told in that indirect way that you get the message with new the new language policing. You're not supposed to use the word slave. Mm. Now, you can say enslaved people. Now, what's the difference? It's ridiculous. Mm. Presumably, the word slave it's, is somehow dehumanizing. It doesn't capture the fact that these are people. Mm. Well, that's true of all nouns that mm. refer to people. Mm. So if I say you're a, a baker, mm. it's not all you are. Yeah. And the word baker mm. doesn't include your humanity. Mm. So what about do if we you're have slave to, say to the rhythm? A baking yes. person? <laughs> exactly yeah. right yeah one who bakes yeah a person of baking persuasion so why do we have to adapt to this rule one of the things i keep trying to remind people yeah. is who comes up with these yeah. rules mm. and See, why got, do we have to obey them i mm. got into terrible trouble because i used the word niggle in an article about Meghan markle oh yes you did too niggles yeah. as in i have a niggle about something yes perfectly good word i yeah. mean it's you know people said that i was being Racist, but I think the it's racism absurd. there is in the eye of the beholder, I'm mm. afraid. Don't you think? I mean, because there wasn't any on my part. No. Yeah. But if you can see racism in that, then there's something wrong with your Well, we've got, a, we've got a serious problem on our hands if not only are we demonizing a whole set of words that used to be fine, and that's not one of them, mm. that, but, but we are demonizing all the words that have any, any resemblance to yes. them, yes. share any yes. letters. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. So Pretty like, soon we're not talking. No, yeah. exactly, because you can't but, say but that, anything. But that's born of lack of education, that, that the, the fact No, that, I think it's a willful desire do you think? to be a victim, to see a victim. Or a uh, willful desire to get at you. 
Well, obviously, yeah. 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 So, but I mean, we- people are perfectly entitled to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's a weapon, yes. yeah. I mean, obviously, getting at me is a, is a national sport. It but is, I, yes. What I'm saying is, is, <laughs> that, as, is yeah. getting at Lionel. Yes. yes. But, but I just think it's just so absurd because it's, you know, that that is not the intention. You can't overlay your own prejudice mm. and your own paranoia and your own desire to be a victim on a perfectly normal word, mm. which has always been in use and which it does not yep. offend. I think it's on this level that I feel my deepest resistance because mm. it's one thing to call me names and, mm. you know, I can protect myself partly by realizing that a lot of the insults that we fling at people now like racist, mm. is so overused mm. that it's completely meaningless. I mean, when someone first called me a racist, I was really injured. Yeah, and, it's very mm, upsetting. Now I don't give a toss. <laughs> it's become a completely meaningless <laughs> well, charge. it's been banded around so much, it's yeah. lost all any of its power. and But it's, it's, but it's when you go at my ability to write, Yeah, I get my back up. Of course, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So... Get your hands off my prose. Off my words, exactly. Don't tell me I have to say enslaved person or I can't use the word niggling. Yeah. Talking of your prose, by the way. Awfully good. Yes, it's very good. (laughs) But there's what I loved about it is you do seem to have a slight obsession with red wine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, you noticed. This is something we share. Actually, my last book, you may recall, Should We Say or Should We Go, has a a glass of red wine on it. And I thought, well, isn't that apt? It made me laugh because right at the beginning of this collection, there's a lovely essay that you write to yourself and there's your hatred of Bulgarian red, I noticed. And then it goes all the way through. I drank a fair bit of it. (laughs) You did your research. Yeah. (laughs) And then it goes all the way through. It was just for the essay. (laughs) And then right at the very end, when it talks about dying, you uh, very brilliantly say that what you would like to do is buy yourself three cases, and I thought only three, of Sauvignon, I think it is, yeah. in order to, uh, and a ticket to uh, Switzerland, uh, which made me laugh. So I just suddenly thought, because what's lovely... Now, to be fair, I wasn't going to drink all of it. Oh. I was going to invite... Your friends. My friends. Oh, oh disappointing. Right. I, thought, I thought you would literally set up an IV of red and just <laughs> glug it all down. <laughs> A few of those bottles yeah. would be marked for me. But it is but you're right. Fun. I have I have a terrible red wine dependency. Yes. <laughs> what is your favorite red wine? Yes. Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah, there you go. From anywhere in particular? I like Australian Cabernets. Very good. I, I like really heavy, heavy wines. And I... Blackcurrant like red wine. I re- I'm very partial to Portuguese wine. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yes. You're not tempted to do like Brad and Angelina and start your own vineyard. Oh, that'd be a good idea. No, I am not. <laughs> I, I believe in division of labor. Someone else has to grow my grapes. Excellent. You drink them. I will write them. them. <laughs> Short stories we can trade. That was Lionel Shriver, whose latest book, Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction, is available now. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edward Stones. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>